Welcome back, everybody, to another episode of Sasoin Corazon. This is your host, Ayana. We are back having some more conversations. And this time, I have the pleasure of hosting Zane. Uh, Zane and I are going to have some great conversation. But before we jump into that, I'm going to let Zane introduce himself. Go ahead, Zane. Sure, Ayana. Thank you so much for having me. So my name is Zane Landon. My pronouns are he, him, his. I live in Chino, California. I'm 24 years old. I just graduated from Cal Poly Pomona, which is a Bachelor of Science in Communication and Public Relations. I'm currently interning at General Motors as a diversity, equity, and inclusion communications intern. I describe myself as an authentic storyteller, PR imagineer, because I didn't think the Disney engineers had the right to take that away from all of us, since I think storytelling <laughs> is the engineer. I mean, you say engineering is like building bridges. I think that's exactly what storytelling is. It's all about building community. So that's why I refer to myself as that. And I'm just super passionate about mental health and disability rights and just diversity and inclusion altogether. Awesome. Oh, thank you so much. I I love that. Um, I think we recently discovered that we both overlap in the diversity, equity, inclusion space, um, since that's what I do uh, as my day job. <laughs> uh, but I love the way you describe it as building bridges, which is mm-hmm. absolutely the case. I think storytelling is very critical, especially when we're trying to show that everyone deserves to be treated equitably and inclusively and have space um, and storytelling is definitely the bridge uh, to help doing that. So I certainly resonate with that. And, you know, I think we need to explain a little bit on how we know each other. So we met through the MTV Mental Health Youth Action Forum, which I think I've said a couple times on this show and we've had guests um, who, who've been uh, participants as well. And um, you know, you talked a lot about your story and just everything that comes with you and who you are and the way that you um, that you carry that with you and, and try to explain to people. So um, before we get into that, how do you feel after the forum? Like, <laughs> what's it been like? I think we mentioned this before that it felt ethereal. It felt like it didn't happen. It felt like it was kind of a dream. I was hoping I wouldn't wake up. Luckily, I didn't wake up, <laughs> and it, it really <laughs> did happen. So, and it just went by so fast. I remember us coming in on Monday, and then Tuesday happened, then we were at the Pinterest Center, and then Wednesday, and then the event was over. Like, that's just how fast it went. It went by really fast. I wish it was a little longer, <laughs> even though, you know, three days was a lot especially when it, you know, it takes a toll on your mental health with all the activities they had planned. But still, I wish it was longer because I feel like during the time of Tuesday and Wednesday was when we were beginning to bond and break down like the barriers. Because, you know, when you first meet someone, there are barriers. And I felt like Tuesday, Wednesday was when we were really starting to open up more and be vulnerable. I'm happy that we're still able to connect monthly through Zoom and everything. But that's one thing I wish. But afterward, I mean, I was just so energized with the room and the aura because as you probably can imagine being a DEI advocate or being disability or mental health, all of it, you feel alone a lot of the time. Sometimes you may not be surrounded, especially for advocates who maybe aren't surrounded by other advocates or people who want to share the mental health journey, aren't surrounded by that. It can feel very lonely. And so it was kind of an incredible feeling in the room that everyone was on the same page. We all definitely agreed on I mean, it has nothing to even do with agreeing, but we just were at the same level of our passion for 
mental health advocacy. I mean, of course, we would all go about advocacy differently, but we're all there trying to achieve one unified goal. So yeah. I felt very grateful. Again, it, it, I can't believe it happened. It was so fast and it was such a great opportunity. The connections that we've made through all these nonprofits and like active minds and like the Jed Foundation follows me. <laughs> so just really starting yes. stuff. Yeah. So, um, and you know, I, I didn't also another thing that really was exciting was rare beauty. They host events and stuff. They host an LGBTQ event um, in June for LGBTQ like rights. And then they talk about, you know, trans awareness and they had, I don't remember their last name, but their name was Raquel. And I was invited to that event and it was a huge honor because it was kind of exclusive. They really had only 15 people there and uh, Huang was there and so was Thea. So they, I think they took note of who was queer at the forum so that they invited us to that. So that was just a huge opportunity. I mean, Selena Gomez wasn't there, but it was still great to hear from, you know, a trans activist who's pretty well known and also just having this connection to Rare Beauty now, even if it's just being connected to like their event planner. I don't remember what their position was at Rare Beauty, but it's really exciting. So that's kind of like yeah. how I feel about it. Just kind of grateful uh, for all the opportunities coming in. That's amazing. I'm I'm so glad that you all got invited to that space, especially when it's not noticed very often. Um, but you're absolutely right. Like it just felt really nice to be in this space where we were all really supportive of each other and just be able to lean on each other. Um, this happened to me recently where it can just be really defeating to continue to fight and be able to like advocate for other people but you don't necessarily feel supported or you just feel very uh, like that, that imposter syndrome really creeps in. So I agree with you. It was just really nice. And, and I felt really grateful, just grateful to walk away with, you know, 30 new friends that I know I could lean on and, and call on, um, you know, even if we don't see each other or talk to each other every day, but we know where we're coming from. So, you know, it's really, really appreciated. Um, I do want to point out though, that like, Dana's downplaying for sure his advocacy. Um, he just so happened to be selected as an honoree for Dis um, Diverse Abilities' third annual, is it, what is it, D30 Disability Impact List? Did I get that right? Yes. What What does that entail? Like, how, how did that even happen? I've heard about the D30 list, such as since Keeley from... Mental Health Action Forum, I think she was a recipient the first year it happened three years ago. So I knew that because I knew about the list and I knew about the organization because yeah. I do follow them. Mm -hmm. I don't know. I just got an email one day that I was nominated and it was a super oh, exciting. that's so sweet. Yeah, it was a super exciting feeling. They asked me for, you know, additional information. So I sent them that and I wasn't confident. I was really worried because I saw the, the nominations they got, the leaders nominated. And I was like, these are some, well, I didn't know the people, but I could assume they're very impressive people, especially looking at the winners and the people who were on the panel who were going to decide who the the, um, the winners were going to be this year. And so I felt I didn't think it was going to be possible. I thought it was something I would get in the future, but I was very pleasantly surprised yesterday when I found out and I just got the email and I didn't want to read it because I was like, oh, no. And what's funny, though, <laughs> what's funny, though, about the whole thing was I was looking that I was looking it up yesterday. I just it came in my mind. I was like, let me look it up. And I was worried because I looked at their website and I was like, oh, they create a social media graphic with a photo. So I was like, oh, no, what if they give people like a week to ask for a photo? They told us we would 
we, we would know in July. So what if they already told people and they're asking for photos? <laughs> like everything's going through my head. Aww. I was like, oh, eh, probably not. But then, so then I got the email later that, that evening. So it was interesting. It was like, I don't want to say like I manifested it, but it came in my head at the right time when it needed to. So that was super exciting to, ex- you know, experience. And it's a huge honor seeing some of the winners. Some of them yeah. I've never heard, but one of them that I know really, um, I mean, I know of them. I've never had a conversation with them, but Emily Ludow, I'm pretty sure their name is. Mm-hmm. Their book, It's a Demystifying Disability, is everywhere. Like, I mean, oh, maybe, not, really? maybe not for some people because they're not in the disability space, but I follow so many disability people on um, LinkedIn. Her book is mm-hmm. And it's just kind of an honor, you know, for her to receive it wow. and for me as well because her book people describe as like the basic good resource for one-on-one disability rights. I've never mm. read it myself yet. I really need to, cause it sounds like a really, you know, excellent resource, but just to yeah. be picked with someone on that level is really exciting. Yeah. That's amazing. I, I think you absolutely belong. Like don't question that <laughs> you are honored. I mean, you're honored for a reason. So I know that I follow you for that reason where like, I know that you were well-versed in this area and, you know, we could all learn a little bit when it comes to disability. So, you know, I just really appreciate you putting yourself out there and just, you know, living authentically you and people see that and they're honoring you. So, you know, I just, I just hope that you know that you belong in it. We see you. Um, So we we really appreciate you. I'm going to link that book in the description of the podcast, by the way, for anyone who missed it, because I really want to read it now too. Um, and, and share as a resource, but let's get into you and who you are and your story. Can you tell me a little bit about your personal story? Like, what have you been through? Like, how has your journey been and how did you get where you are today? Gosh, I mean, starting from when I was very young, I experienced depression, anger, probably more so than most kids. I had a hard time socializing with other children. I don't know why, but I just did and so you know throughout middle school no sorry throughout elementary school is really where I was given the extra support that I needed and so I did have like extra tutoring because I also had trouble paying attention in school so I had a lot of different things going on that you know hindered me from doing my best and that's not necessarily because of me but because the school system but the resources in place for me were incredibly helpful and so I was able to give like ex, um, additional tutoring, less homework. And I was even, I got to interact with a group of students who also needed the similar support. And, you know, I would, I would visit a counselor every week. I'm trying to remember how often it was, but, and we would just talk about stuff and play games and stuff. And they would give me different techniques like journaling. So I was always exposed to trying to manage my emotions from a very young age. And I think that, you know, I've always, yeah, I think that, you know, I've always had an anger problem, but I think it's a lot better now because of those tools I was given from an early age, which is why I think that we should be talking about mental health all the time from an early age. Luckily, I say luckily, because even though I had, you know, mental health issues, that's why I was given the support, but not everyone gets that. So I, I, that's why I say I was lucky that my family advocated for me. And so for anyone who has, you know, children, you're going to be their greatest hero if you fight for them. Because I know, and no fault to other parents, because, you know, some parents just don't know. You know, like, there are many people that have disabilities that don't don't get diagnosed. They have a learning disability. 
they're not doing well in school and maybe parents may think it's their kid or the system, but they don't know what to do. And so, you know, I definitely suggest people, you know, parents to um, always advocate for their, on behalf of their children. So um, no matter what, so that, that's what definitely supported me as well. And then, you know, middle school, I had some issues, but you know, I progressively got better just because of my experiences and what I went through. The elementary school really helped me a lot with that. <laughs> and I didn't really become a disability advocate till I was in university. So I joined Best Buddies in high school. And that's like an organization that, you know, tries to break the, break the barriers between people with disabilities and without. So you would befriend people who have disabilities and you some some chapters you're like in a family, like a little buddy family. Um, not all chapters do that, but mine did. And it was really exciting and I really loved it. And I got really involved my senior year of high school as like a cabinet leader. But when I got to university, I kind of forgot about that. I kind of forgot about disability advocacy because right when I right when I got to school, I was focused on my classes, meeting new people. And then like I found this leadership opportunity that had nothing to do with disability. And I was like, I told myself I wasn't going to get involved my first quarter. But this was a huge opportunity and it definitely paid off. It was being like a, a public relations officer for the College of Education's council. And I was able to be president my third year. It was my fourth year. Anyways, one of those years, <laughs> no, it was my fourth year. So my fourth year, I was president. So it was a huge, it was a huge opportunity for me. And I'm glad I invested my time and efforts into it. So that's kind of like why I kind of forgot about disability because I got involved in just other things. And then my second year, I was in student government and I was appointed to the access and compliance team, which was a committee that was focusing on trying to create a better accessible university. So talking about a lot of different things and it kind of opened my eyes again to disability. And then the next year I joined the Access and Disability Alliance, which is their basically their affinity group for disability. And then that's where it skyrocketed um, because that was where I kind of learned everything again about disability and how much I love the community. And what's really funny was this whole time I had a disability myself, like not having difficulty paying attention in school, but I, it wasn't really communicated to me um, until, you know, until I started asking questions. So it's interesting how a lot of advocates are advocating on behalf of their disability. I kind of came in just wanting to advocate for the community and I found my disability through it, even though I've always had it. Uh, so that was that was pretty interesting. And then through that, you know, I've always had mental health as well. So I had, I had mental health and disability, even though contrary to proper belief, they're, they're the same. I know a lot of people forget that. I know a lot of people go, I'm a mental health advocate or I'm a disability advocate. That's why in my LinkedIn, I say I'm a mental health and disability advocate because there, people separate the two, and I want to make sure that people understand that I do both because I want people to know. But I always try to make sure that people know that they are the same thing. And mental health yeah. is disability. You know, disability is all about the mind and body, um, and so is mental health. And it all impacts yeah. one. So I think people forget that, but I have to remember they are the same. Yeah, absolutely. Speaking of kids, I've got my daughter in the background making noise in case anyone uh, can actually hear that. But um, I completely agree. I mean, you already answered my next question was your support system. Like, luckily, you had people who were yeah. advocating for you and supporting you throughout those difficulties and being your heroes, right? Um, and and being able to make sure you got the help that you needed. Um, but I do want to expand on mental health and disability advocacy and ask you what 
intersectionality means for you um, because those things are intersectional. That's essentially what it is, right? Like someone can have a disability, but they also have mental health and vice versa and all of these other things that people bring to the table. So what does it mean for you and how have your identities impacted you? Yeah, so I'll explain what I think intersectionality is. I think of it a little differently than I think yeah, please share. the mainstream intersectionality is. I think everyone is intersectional, every single person. You yes. can be, in my opinion, the most privileged person, but I think every identity is intersectional, even if you're on a privileged identity. So, you know, mm-hmm. like being a male, some people wouldn't consider that intersectional. Oh, it very much is, because intersectionality is all about having that different dynamic. So I'm not going to assume, because I hear a lot about intersectionality and some people go, intersectionality is the more oppressed identities you have, the more oppressed you'll be. I actually don't believe that. And I only say that because it's not for me to decide. To me, I just view intersectionality as just a whole different dynamic. It's not up to me mm-hmm. to say that you're going to be more oppressed because you have more identities. You're just going to have a different experience. It's up to you if you if you say you're more oppressed or not. I don't. Does that how that makes sense? I don't want I don't want to label people on what their experiences are. I just know that for me, intersectionality is just having a different dynamic that comes with having different, you know, identities, and that intersectionality is all about all those identities coming together and making you who you are. And that's why intersectionality is a unique experience. So you could have someone yeah. who's black and queer, they could have completely different experiences. Some could be yeah. very privileged and some aren't. So it really depends on where they grew up. Every single thing. That's why I'm saying every single thing matters in the conversation about intersectionality. So I hope that makes sense. Because mm-hmm. um, like for me, like I identify as Hispanic, queer, and disabled, as well as being a male, which has its own barriers in the Hispanic community. There's a lot of different yes. things going on with that, especially the pressures of the whole machismo culture and a lot of different things. And I know a lot of people will look at that and think, well, that benefits men. Well, it, not not exactly. <laughs> there are places where it does and there's places where it doesn't. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So I think machismo culture will benefit men in a certain way, but I think it's actually going to, it's going to demean men in, in a certain way because they can't, they can't be themselves without having to put on the show or put on these emotions when they may not really feel yeah. that way. So I think or it, be vulnerable. Definitely. So, you know, I think it oppresses a lot because it impacts their mental health. You know, you'll have, mm-hmm. you know, I, I say Hispanic men, but I think, you know, men, men go through this, but, you know, men of color uh, definitely are scrutinized a lot more for it. And I think that, you know, a lot of their mental health is on a decline because of reasons like that, because there's pressures to take care of the family. There's pressures to not go to school or to have to work full time for their family or be caretakers for their family whatever it is, they have a lot of pressures on their shoulders and it does impact their mental health. And it's even worse if they have to go and experience that and they can't even speak about it or be vulnerable because of how they were brought up. And I don't, and as long as they're not being, you know, sometimes I think I see that there's like some shaming going on when it comes to that. Like I'll see people go, you know, we'll just be vulnerable. Um, Well, you can't really do that. For some people, it can't be that simple. If someone has gone through their whole life and thought vulnerability is a weakness for however long they've been alive, how do you expect them to just be vulnerable? It's too hard. And so you have to understand it's going to be this, like, a progress. It's going to be a process. It's not something that's going to happen overnight, especially for people who have had those beliefs instilled in them from a very young age. And, you know, since kids are so impressionable, if they're already experiencing shame and guilt, it's so hard to have to, you know, rewire your brain to think differently. So I know it can be hard. Um, and I, I don't condone toxicity then because I know that sometimes those people can like can be toxic at times. 
That's mm-hmm. a different story. <laughs> yeah, different. very different. But it is, you're right. Like to your point, like the, the environment needs to be safe for people to be able to be vulnerable. Like it's, yes, it's a rewriting of the brain, but we also have to create psychologically safe environments for people to feel comfortable to be like, you know what, this is a person I can talk to, or yes, I can speak up in this space and things like that. But, you know, I, it is, it is a very different perspective to like frame intersectionality that way. And I think what's at play here is that there's two, two distinct uh, umbrellas under this, right? Like there is the person's experience, which is very different. And yes, it is up to the person, you know, to determine what that experience is and how, you know, they express that. But there's also historical and social context about particular specific identities and, and, you know, how they've been treated. So I think right. a lot of the times people mix the two together, but they are very distinct, right? Like, an individual can control maybe like their immediate experiences and things like that. But what they cannot control is the system that historically and socially has been constructed to oppress them in certain ways. Um, And I think that's what people mean when the more identities or more marginalized identities that you, that you carry, the more oppressed you are. I think they're more so referring about the system rather than their experiences. Right. Um, Because it may not be true for everyone, but it's, it's, systematically been set up that way so it's so complicated and it is really difficult to explain um because everyone has a different interpretation and i just i guess my whole intent is for people to really just see that we are intersectional beings right like we can carry multiple layers at the same time that we can't necessarily separate right you are a Hispanic male. You're also part of the disability community as well as the LGBT community. But you carry those all at the same time. And yeah. and that can be a lot of pressure to carry, especially when you're already trying to address your mental health. Um, and then and then the environment around you doesn't condone for any of those identities to be really, you know, included or treated equitably. Um so it just it's it's just complicated and it sucks sometimes and i don't know i just really want people to just just like be heard in this space right like there's so many different things that we carry along with us and all of that can impact our mental health and the way that we walk in the world you know i agree um and what i'm no i totally agree about how the system has been built to you know instill barriers or push people down my only thing is, is I just don't want to assume that about people. You know what I mean? Yeah. And I want people to be, I want people to be empowered to say that that's their story and that the system has pushed them down because for some it didn't, um, mm-hmm. you know, for, and even people who I know who are Hispanic have gone through very little racism. And so they may not even think that way. And some people yeah. like me and then people will look at me and be like, well, I'm light skinned. I haven't experienced racism. That's not for you to decide. <laughs> that's for me to decide. And there's a lot of colorism that I've experienced and colorism you know, is really interesting. I think it's just as harmful as racism because people will take me less seriously as Hispanic because I don't speak Spanish or because I don't come from their view of what a traditional Hispanic family is, which again, when you look at stuff like that and you, and this is coming from the community itself when, you know, just because I'm light skinned or I don't speak Spanish, those are again, harmful stereotypes that were kind of built by the system. And yes. so when the system has these things and even your own community is trying to perpetuate them, you're denying me my Hispanic roots because I don't look like I'm supposed to look like. What does that even mean? Mm-hmm. So it's very, yeah. very, it's very complicated. And denying but, you your identity. Yeah. 
I think it's like say that. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's like denying your race, which again can be very harmful because there's always the space where I'm not exactly hundred percent included in the white community, but I'm not exactly hundred percent included in the Hispanic community. And I have other Mm. identities like, um, I identify as Chinese and black because that's just my family roots. But mm. I'm not going to feel comfortable in those spaces um, if I identify that way. I'm not going to be treated that way, even if I say I am. Then maybe there'll be some people that will treat me that way and see me that way, but most people won't. And so yeah. that's just what to do it. So that's what's interesting about intersectionality, especially when you have there's different colors and different races involved because sometimes they transition. Like sometimes I'll feel Hispanic, sometimes I won't, depending on how mm. people treat me. So even like, I know that part of race is how you identify, but like how I'm treated sometimes will will definitely alter like how I identify in that moment. And what's also interesting about intersectionality is what identities are more important. Because even though they all intersect at once, you're definitely going to have more importance and also how, what people see first. And so, yeah. you know, for some people, let's think like someone may be Hispanic and they may have a disability, a physical one that you can see. They might see disability first and then Hispanic. So it's, sometimes it's interesting, like what people see first and how they're going to treat you from what they see first Maybe it adds mm-hmm. another layer when they know you're Hispanic now. It's very interesting. I don't, I love yeah. talking about this because I usually don't talk about this. And it's really interesting <laughs> to talk about. And, you know, just my personal opinion on there's so many different things going on left and right with race. And it's not as simple as black and white racism. It's, you know, it's, yeah. not, just, it's not just one group pressing the other. It's all of the groups that carry yeah. these stereotypes and still perpetuate. It. And that to me is very harmful because we don't want that coming from our communities. That's the that's the mm. last place we want it from. That's the last place we think we're going to get it, which is even worse. Yeah. It's like, oh, I have this racial identity. I see you. You know, we share this identity, but yet you're pushing me away with like harmful stereotypes. Yeah. That's the last person I want to experience it from, right? Oh, that's so powerful, and I and I'm a little bit speechless because I've literally experienced the same thing. Mm-hmm. Is you know, I have felt amongst our Latino community or Latinx that I'm not quite Hispanic enough because I'm first gen and, you know, mm. I'm I'm born and raised here in the States, but then I'm also not Black enough because I'm not, you know, from a yeah. specific lineage or whatever it is, but I intersect with both and, and care about both of them deeply. But you're mm. right. It like some of them, some of our identities come up a little more and, and are fluid depending on how accepted we feel. And I, I don't think I've ever, I've never heard that out loud, like someone articulated that way. And it really resonates with me because, you know, there are times where I don't feel necessarily embraced in certain spaces mm-hmm. where I wish I could. And you feel like almost FOMO where like, I really, <laughs> I really want to enjoy this with you, <laughs> yeah, um, but sure. don't necessarily feel comfortable doing so. So, wow, that's, Thank you for that because that was really that was really powerful. I don't think I've ever heard it in that way, um, and that's that's super important to understand because we definitely do. Or at least I can relate to that. You know, like I'm, it's very fluid depending on also like who I'm with or who I'm related to, and we're very like homogenous beings, right? Like we want to be around people like us, but when those people don't necessarily embrace you, you're just like, well, damn. <laughs> Um, you know, it doesn't really feel good. So and then there's, yeah, I really appreciate that perspective. No, yeah. And then, you know, to add on that, there's so much more, though. There's layers because, you know, when you feel isolated from your own community, 
of course you're going to internalize it. And for some, they're going to think there's something wrong with themselves. And then yeah. they may go beyond that and say, no, there's nothing wrong with me. This is something I have to experience. This is what the community is perpetuating. I don't want to, I don't want to be around that. But then some people will experience the like internalized racism where they're going to think, I'm not even accepting my own community. I hate being Hispanic. So there's so many different mm-hmm. ways that people can react. And so all the internalized stuff can come from that as well. So there's a lot of different ways that people can maneuver the world. But uh, as long as we're on the same page, I wish communities would be on the same page and not have to think about some or not push some of this stuff, especially, you know, as I'm in a relationship that's interracial, that there's issues with that as well. Not not from my oh. personal experience. No one from my family is against that, but it's very much against many different families. It's really unfortunate. Yes. Yeah, it is. Absolutely. It's just, I remember when I told my grandma, my, my grandma is born and raised in DR and, and I love her to death, but she is of the whitest complexion ever. Um, and when I first told her that I had a boyfriend who at the time was very, very black and dark skinned, she cried. And mm. it was my first encounter of how colorism really presents itself, especially in our own communities. And it just like blew my mind because ironically, my grandfather is very, very dark, also born and raised in DR and is <laughs> is the darkest one in our family. So I'm just like, how does this work? <laughs> but this is, it was very, very confusing to me. Um, so I agree with you. Like, I really wish that like, I didn't, I didn't necessarily have to encounter that, right? Like, I really wish I taught, I was taught that it is, it's beautiful that we come in all shapes and sizes and shades and that we all have a different, you know, background and who, who gives a shit (laughs) who you marry, who you decide to have relations with, as long as you're happy, like, why else does any of that matter? But obviously that would, you know, that's dreamer thinking there. Oh gosh. But um I want to go back just a little bit and you mentioned that you've encountered certain barriers and have had certain experiences. Can we talk a little bit about what are some of the barriers you've faced in the workplace and how have you channeled that passion into your work? So you know, we both are in the diversity, equity, inclusion space. So how have you kind of gathered yourself in those experiences and push it into like these amazing articles that you publish and all this other work that you're doing? Well, for the longest time, I did not embrace diversity and inclusion in the workplace. And mostly because I never thought it'd be a place for me. I think because I always thought that, you know, diversity, inclusion and disability work was always going to be something I did on the side. I don't know if I wanted it to be a career, mostly because it's hard. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and for It is. Yeah, it can be very emotionally taxing and it can be draining, especially if you're in it. I am lucky that I work for a company that embraces disability and I have mentors there that care a lot about disability, but there are so many companies that do not. And so if you are there and you're pushing for a disability and you're not getting any feedback, any re- you're not getting any, like, re- no one's receptive to it, I can totally imagine why someone doesn't want to continue doing that work. And that's how I kind of felt for some time. Those are some of the barriers I experienced, not exactly in the workplace, but even before where I was just worried that it was going to be too taxing. And I thought that I would be the only one in the room bringing this stuff up, which you never want to be because at that moment Mm -hmm. you can become a token and that's the issue. And sometimes I worry about that, not right, right now, but like in a role where no one's focusing on disability and I am, 
Now I become the spokesperson. Now I hold all the cards when it comes to disability. I'm like, I don't know everything though. Like you can't rely on me because for one, it may not be part of my job. And two, I don't, I only have one perspective, you know, and my disability is not the, there's so many disabilities. And so you really have to do research and, you know, if I'm the only person who's vocal about disability at this company, then that's also an issue. And that's something that needs yes. to be addressed. Like if there's only a couple of people addressing disability or even race or whatever, that's an issue. Because either you don't have enough people there or they just don't feel comfortable to bring it up. Because you never know with mm-hmm. disability, um, you know, the dis- disclosure rates are very low across the board. And a lot of it has yeah. to do, yeah. you know, a lot of it has to do with, you know, people may not feel comfortable sharing that or you always even if and you know what, but even if you have this open safe space for people with disabilities. I don't, I completely understand why they still wouldn't want to share it though. Even if they're at a place where they might feel safe about it, I understand why they don't. Because the moment you disclose you have a disability, you in a way may be viewed differently and not necessarily a good way. And so that's the unfortunate, that's the unfortunate truth. And so I don't blame people who um, decide not to disclose. I hope they can one day so that they can get the accommodations they need and they can just bring their whole self to work without having to hide who they are. You know, I think doing mm-hmm. that, you'll be more comfortable, you'll be more productive, you'll be, you'll, feel, you'll probably just feel better about yourself as long as, you know, but again, I understand why people don't because there's so many barriers and people might judge you really, you know, excruciatingly. So I understand. Yeah, it's really, really hard. And, you know, now that you mentioned that, I feel like I, <laughs> I just call myself I'm guilty because um, I am technically a disabled disabled veteran and I don't necessarily disclose my disability um, or talk about it or explain what it means to me in the workplace and you're right I think part of it is because like a lot of people don't necessarily understand the dynamic and then I feel like I have to educate everyone on, on my particular experience and I'm one perspective and then you feel like you always have to represent a certain group of people. Um, Mm -hmm. And that's, that's really hard. You know, I read in um, the state of disability or diversability report, I think it is um, that only 4% of employees at companies that prioritize disability disclose that they have a disability, Um, which is extremely low. Um, you know, and we definitely need to do better in that way. To me, that says that psychological safety sucks in the workplace and people just don't feel safe to to disclose it. Um, and I also think that we aren't necessarily equipped to understand, like as employers and, and people who support other people. It, a lot of us don't necessarily know, and I'm including myself on this, know how to embrace and support others in a way that is empowering in a way that is, you know, just authentic instead of like, Oh, checking the box that we've got to, you know, we've got to be ADA compliant or we've got to report this to whatever government agency. You know what I mean? Like, I think it's really hard. And like you said, we don't talk about it enough. Um, And it's, it's one of those things that's really like, I guess it's just uncomfortable to ask people like, it would be really odd for me to like walk up to you and be like, Hey Zane, do you have a disability? How can I be help you? <laughs> you know? I know. Oh, that's interesting. Cause yeah, you know, I don't, I, personally, if someone wants to come to me, there's nothing wrong with them asking me a question, 
but I understand that it's yeah. completely sensitive for someone else. So I think, I don't think it, you should really ask about someone's disability, but if they've been really open about it in the past and you know, I don't know if there's any like harm or foul in asking, but you still have to tread very lightly because you don't know what you might be asking about. You could be triggering. That's definitely happened to me in the past. Yeah. I asked to ask personal questions that were too personal and it wasn't a good idea. And also this goes back to what we first said about storytelling and so that is the one way mm-hmm. I think we can embrace people with disabilities is telling their stories and allowing them to yeah. share who they are at work and also on the screen. Because again, once we start seeing people with disabilities more on TV, more on social media, and more on just every landscape of the world, then people will see a person with disability and go, wow, they're a completely normal person because that's exactly what they are. They just have, yeah. they just have something that limits them like we all do. Um, you know, and mm-hmm. that's that's an interesting way to think about it, because you know we all have something that limits us. They just need additional support. That's it. You know that that's how I see it, yeah. and they just have a different perspective on life. And you know, it's it's about time that we bring in their perspectives because they some of them view the world very differently. And you know, to tell stories and to look at the workforce and how it can all change, we need to start including people with disabilities because they experience the world very differently and depends on the person. But that's how I think we can start evolving is, again, telling the stories and just I think we'll see a cultural shift once we tar- start telling stories and just normalizing these experiences so people can see, yeah. wow, this is exactly what a person with disability is. Not This is not the entire experience, but they're just a normal person. And if we don't see stories and you're not seeing people with disabilities, you're still going to keep these stereotypes in your mind and they're going to keep perpetuating until you actually interact with someone with disability um, or, you know, you see them on screen or something. And even if you ra- interact yeah. with someone with a disability, if you still live in a culture that's exclusive, they may not talk about it. So there's so many different things. I know I'm going a little bit on a tangent, but, you know, yeah. I think storytelling is so powerful for this, for mental health and disability and, you know, every marginalized group, to be honest. Yeah, yeah but that's really, really important. And I think it's, you know, it's it's important for people to understand that we have feelings, too. And it can be really vulnerable for us to even admit that we have a disability. At least for me, it was, especially when mm-hmm. I wasn't necessarily born with my disability. It was developed, right? It was, you know, life events and things happen. And, um, you know, it, it was something I had to come to terms with myself. Um, and so that can be really vulnerable and really um, lonely, especially when other people don't know. Um, so I would offer that, you know, maybe build some trust, build a relationship with that person. Um, you know, if you are having these conversations and just remember that we're living in a world that doesn't necessarily center them. And that can be really difficult when you're facing challenges at every direction and you just simply want to exist, um, which can impact people's mental health. And, and that's a lot to take on, but wow. you know, yeah. be kind to each other you know, be kind to each other. Not all disabilities are visible, uh, but whether they are or not, you know, we can, we can just treat each other with some grace and, you know, include all instead of, you know, prioritize one. So um, my question for you is what advice would you give to others who don't feel comfortable or who may not even have the privilege to speak up about their mental health or their disability or their identities? What do you tell them? I tell them to find someone who will listen to you and also find someone that's sharing their own story 
and you may be in a place where you can't physically find someone. But we got technology at our fingertips. There's things like the Jet mm-hmm. Foundation, Active Minds, Born This Way. There are so many people doing the work. And I'll let you on a little secret. They're always looking for volunteers. They're always looking for volunteers. These organizations are always looking for volunteers. Find a local nonprofit. Find a nonprofit that's doing mental health work. And I'm sure that they would be willing to have a conversation with you about what you're interested in doing. And also, I'm sure that they would just be interested in just meeting with you and getting to know you, even if you're not going to be like a wholly dedicated volunteer. That's always my advice I tell people is you may be at a place where you can't share it, but surround yourself with people who can. And again, if you can't do that physically, you definitely can virtually because there are people out there who are doing the work and who work at these organizations and always want support. And once you start supporting these organizations and now you're around these people that are just talking about mental health like it's such a normal experience because it is – then maybe you'll yeah. have, maybe you'll have the courage to share it in your circle. And again, if you don't, that's fine though, because now you still have these people where you can share it. So that's what I would say is you know, don't limit yourself just on who you know and your life experience. I know it makes sense to people who who you love and the ones you're closest with. You want to share this stuff, but the kind of the harsh reality is you may not be able to. But find people that will embrace it, and then maybe one day when they come around, definitely you can share that with them. So hopefully that makes yeah. sense. And I hope you, yeah. So yeah, I hope really, people really find the confidence to share it because you know, if you are experiencing mental health, your family really needs to know because you know they obviously don't want you to be experiencing it, and they might want to get, they probably want to get you help. And so it's gonna be hard for you as a child to find resources. I'm thinking, I'm speaking from a child here, but you even asked just in general. <laughs> but I'm thinking as a child, yeah, but no, it's important for everybody. Yeah, I know, even especially adults. Um, the only difference is you know, an adult can if they have you know the resources. And the insurance to get, you know, those resources. But for children, it's very much harder. So I hope children can talk about it instead of having it manifest for years and years. And that's why you have people who have a lot of issues as adults. And it's just too much because they've had Mm -hmm. to hold all this trauma in themselves in this bundle for a long time. And it comes out. So this is why I, I think I wish there was like some sort of educational curriculum or teaching where even your basic health class in high school, that they're talking about mental Mm -hmm. health, too. You know, because it's just as important. I mean, it's it's great to talk about health and STDs and all that stuff. You know, all that important <laughs> stuff. Like that's the stuff that I learned about in the health class. But like, we did not talk about mental health or like what a suicide toolkit is or whatever it is. Like all this stuff is so important. And so, yeah. So that that's yeah. that is what I think. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. No, I I really really agree. And I'll say that my DMs are always open and, you know, I'm more than happy to connect anyone to these organizations and just be able to make connections, uh, share resources as always. We'll list all the organizations in the description of the podcast. Um, but please know that there are people out there doing the work and who are specifically creating um, spaces for, you know, youth mental health specifically but just anyone, um, everyone and anyone has mental health um, and we're all, you know, dealing with it on a daily basis. So you are not alone. And I just really, really want to emphasize that. I think I've said that on every episode, <laughs> but it's, I cannot say it enough um, because it, it really is true. We're all, we're all just trying to do this shit together and figure it out. So, you know, and we might as well find common ways. Yeah. And my DMs are open as well. <laughs> <laughs> I will list um, your socials and where people can find you in the description. But uh, before we go, if you want, just uh, let us know where people can find you. What are you working on? You know, what can we expect from you? Oh, sure. I mean, 
You can find me on my personal pages. I'm really active on Instagram and LinkedIn. My Just my full name, Zane Landon. I also have my own digital magazine I didn't really get to talk about, but it's a digital magazine. Oh, yes. <laughs> no, it's okay. I can give a brief description now. Um, Please I, do. Yeah, I founded Positive Vibes Magazine, which is all about sharing positive stories, kind of like what you're doing, but yours is through a, you know, a podcast platform. And we interview people who have disabilities, who have mental health experiences, even people who do light work, which is, you know, like people who are doing mediumship or who are psychics or doing angel healing. I know it's like very much out there, but I think the way we take care of ourselves is so different for everyone that how can we deny someone their experience and their advice? And that's the point of the magazine is, you know, some of this stuff might be out there for someone, but just have an open mind. You never know what this could lead to if you embrace a a certain type of healing. Because that mindset is exactly why, you know, traditional medicine um, can be problematic, not because it's bad, but because it doesn't embrace alternative methods of medicine. And so this is their medicine. And so whatever your medicine is, be open to whatever is out there. <laughs> so yeah, that's what I would say. No, I completely the, agree. Oh, sorry. I was just going to finish. No, go this. ahead. Sorry. <laughs> I was going to finish with the magazine is Positive Vibes Magazine. You can find us on LinkedIn, Facebook, and Instagram. And Instagram, it's Positive Vibes Mag. Um, and so if you have a powerful story you want to share, you reach out and we will amplify your story as well. So, yes. Positive Mag. Wait, I said that wrong. Positive Vibes Mag. Yes. Man, it's been a long day. So sorry, everybody. I'm sounding on my words. But um, no, I absolutely appreciate um, you bringing that up because it's definitely important work. And, you know, there's misconceptions that mental health is only going to a therapist or only going to a doctor or whatever that is. Um, but Western medicine is not the only um, option. And, you know, you can do a combination of things like you can still see a therapist, but also, you know, have some of these other practices that are out there and, you know, take little bits and pieces of different um, other cultures and other perspectives. Um, so I, I love that. Um, I will be reading too, to find my own <laughs> mix and match of healing practices. Um, and, you know, I look forward to seeing, seeing, you know, some stories amplified and, you know, just keeping this conversation going. Um, that is all the time that we have for today, but I just cannot thank you enough for being here. Um, I've learned so much from this conversation and have been open to a lot of things. So I really appreciate you having this conversation with me and just willing to show up. Um, you know, and I know that it can be really vulnerable and really nerve wracking to have these conversations on different platforms. So, you know, I appreciate you and I'm just really glad that our paths have crossed and hopefully we continue to work together and we continue to make magic happen. Um, and I just, um, I'm thrilled to, to just be able to call you a friend and, and to have these conversations with you. No, likewise, I'm really glad our paths crossed too, which is pretty you know, especially since we have some similar experiences, because during the forum, we didn't really get to talk too much. And that was the thing. There was a lot of us and we were already kind of split into groups. So we kind of already found our little niches. And I love that we all got to interact, but we still kind of had our groups. So it was really yeah. exciting that we we're able to do this and talk about this because we didn't get to talk too much at the forum. And so I'm excited to see like how this will further develop. And, and thank yourself too for, you know, opening up the space for people though. Because it's, again, it's not just having the courage to share your story. It's also giving the space for someone to do so in the platform. So thank you for doing this. 
Thank you so much. I really appreciate you. Well, everyone, that has been another episode of Cecil and Corazon. I've been joined by Zane Landon. You can check him out on socials. I'll drop all the resources that we've mentioned here in this episode. But we thank you all for listening and for being here and for supporting. Uh, please uh, like, subscribe, and turn on notifications on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. We really appreciate you all for your support. Thank you so much. <laughs>